You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We would like to thank ZipRecruiter for continuing their support of SpyCast. You'll hear more about this great company later, but first, let's meet our guests. So we're joined today by Monty Real, who's a former South America correspondent for The Washington Post, and he also reported for the newspaper in Washington and Iraq. He's the author of two previous books, Between Man and Beast and The Last of the Tribe. His writing has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, Harper's, and other magazines, and he currently writes for Bloomberg Businessweek as part of its projects and investigation staff. His new book is A Brotherhood of Spies, The U-2 and the CIA's Secret War, which has literally just come out uh, the day this is released on Tuesday the 8th. So welcome, Monty, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure. So the book, as the, the title suggests, is about the, the development of the U-2 and how it was used during the Cold War period. Um, I want to ask you, because there have been books written about this subject prior, uh, and your other books that you've written are very different uh, in, 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 you know, in their subject area. You're looking at you know, ancient tribes and, and in areas within South America. Uh, what led you to write a book about the U-2? Yeah, well, you're right. There have been a lot of, of books written that deal with various aspects of the U-2. It's obviously kind of a central, you know, almost a foundational project for the CIA. And a lot of those books that have been written are really good books, I hasten to add. Um, but I was really interested. What drew me into this was just the story of it. I wanted to concentrate on the narrative of the U-2 and its early days because I think it's just – so dramatic and and really affecting in some ways, um, both the story of its development, how it was kind of conceived and, and got off the ground, and also the story of the early deployments of it. And I wanted to try to focus on a few main characters um, and kind of concentrate on looking at where they took the U-2 project, but, but not only that, also where the U-2 project took them. Um, 
And so I just kind of developed this interest in the subject, and I was really um, fortunate because that interest kind of coincided with a period that was, uh, you know, really in the last 10 years um, has been a period where just enormous amounts of materials have been declassified right. that um, deal either directly or indirectly with the U2 program. And if you look at most of those declassified documents, they're, they're not blockbuster documents at all. They're, a lot of them, you know, way more than 99% are actually, you know, they're, they're pretty routine. They're, you know, documents of memos and descriptions of meetings and things like that. Other than a few, like in, in 2013, there were some documents that were released about Area 51 that made the newspapers. Um, but most of these are, are documents that are really under the radar and not individually of interest. But when you look at them collectively, they're enormously valuable for someone like me who's trying to collect details and build scenes because right. um, these documents really did allow me to kind of um, cross-reference to other documents, to other sources, and build scenes and try to write a book that had a different sort of narrative texture than maybe some of the other ones that had been written. Right. I mean, I can be honest and say that I've I've read, like our audience probably, I've read a lot about this time period and about this program. And so when we get new books in, uh, I almost always move to the whatever conversation in the book is about sources to see what's new. Uh, and so I flipped to that part of the book at the end where I read about basically your, your acknowledgments. We were thanking people that helped you. And I was impressed by kind of the wide breadth of people you talked to from this for this, including the families, including Sergei Khrushchev, people who were there, uh, in-depth presidential library work, research work. And then, of course, like you mentioned, the declassified documents that are very recent. Yeah, no, it's uh, – I mean, this is a subject that, you know – it's really rich, and it's gotten richer, not only because of the declassified stuff, but also, you know, you have the other side, too. You mentioned Sergei Khrushchev. Um, you know, we can now get the, the Soviet perspective, which was never really possible before. Um, there are documents that they've released and interviews that have been done with people in the Soviet Union, which gives a different angle on things, which is just, you know, just another kind of layer that can be added to it. So let me let me ask you about some of these personalities. And actually, I want to start with Edwin Land because people out there may have heard the name Kelly Johnson if they've kind of done any kind of research on CIA or U two. Obviously, Gary Powers. Uh, it's you know with movies coming out recently about his life, and then even Bissell. Uh, anyone who has a CIA background may have heard of that name. But Land is someone who anyone really under the age of well, let's not age people, but a relatively young age may not even know the name of his company, Polaroid. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's hard to argue that he wasn't one of the most important inventors in American history. I mean, his name probably should be up there with Edison's. Yeah, he, I mean, he is a fascinating character. And that was one of the things I really enjoyed about researching this book was learning about him. The U2 was obviously like any, you know, huge project. It has many fathers. But I think if there's one person you can kind of point to as the father of the U2, I think it would really have to be Edwin Land. Um, and he, if you look at him, he himself was kind of a prototype. He's the prototype of that 
um, American technological entrepreneur, the kind of person who we think of as like a Bill Gates or a Steve Jobs. Now, Edwin Land was kind of the model for that. He had he started as an inventor. He developed this new technology of polarization and created the Polaroid company, which was really an iconic company, camera company. He invented the process of instant photography. And so by the time, you know, the U2 was being developed and he came into this, he was actually a household name. The, his cameras, the land cameras, were incredibly popular. Um, he was... He was he was just kind of a famous guy along the ter- along the lines of of a Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, or any of the kind of tech moguls that we think of today. And he was one of the actually one of the wealthiest people in America at one time in the mid century. I found a list of the most wealthy people in America that was published in the I think it was in the early sixties, and he was in the top five. So he, he was somebody who was known, who was extraordinarily successful, but who often um, kind of got himself involved in trying to help the government with government projects. And in World War II is when he really started doing this. Um, He kind of cast himself as this freelance problem solver. Whenever the military, for example, would run into a problem, um, he'd often try to figure out a solution for it. For example, um, General Patton was complaining that the, some of his tank gunners were being injured because of recoil. When they would look in the sights of the tanks, it would um, slam back and injure their eyes. So Land invented or created with his team at Polaroid a fixed focus lens that solved that problem. Um, one of my favorite stories of one of the things he did in World War II was the Allies were having a problem with guard dogs that were um, guarding beaches, and they weren't used to sand, and the wind would blow the sand and irritate the eyes of the dogs. Land actually developed Polaroid goggles for canines as a way to try to solve that problem. So he was always kind of working with the government in an informal way, um, but in 1954, he um, headed a a project. It was called the Technological Capabilities Panel. Um, he was put in charge of basically trying to come up with technological solutions or new technological developments to help intelligence gathering. Right. I mean, the TCP is something that uh, was an all-hands-on-deck operation for the U.S. government and really looking at different groups figuring out ways to maximize retaliatory strikes or early warning. But his group was really the tricky one that was most intelligence-focused because it was about trying to figure out how do we get in front of an attack? How do we detect it before it's even launched or considered to be launched? It's really very intelligence-heavy. Um, and, and Lan was the leader of that group. Um, what was interesting to me about this story always uh, was that very quickly early on, the, the, the Group 3 of TCP realized that old-fashioned human intelligence collection was not the answer to their problems. Right. Yeah. They, I mean, they went into this um, thinking about technological solutions. And Land, uh, Land was an idealist. He really did believe in, in the transformative power of technology to, to create a better society. And um, at the same time that the TCP was beginning to meet in 1954, there were – 
there were other reports that were circulating around Washington. Jimmy Doolittle um, had um, issued his famous Doolittle report, and one of the conclusions that Doolittle came up with, it's kind of an oft-quoted line from his report, was that um, because the Soviet threat was so existential um, and so serious, that he thought the U.S. really kind of had to get its hands a little little dirtier. And the quote that is often pulled from his report was, um, there are no rules in such a game. Hitherto acceptable norms of human conduct do not apply. Um, Edwin Land always kind of had, um, he always looked to technology as almost a moral solution to problems as well. And he saw a high-altitude reconnaissance plane, not only as a way to effectively gather intelligence, but it was also a, a way, he believed, for the U.S. to kind of play clean, that the the CIA would be able to kind of go above the fray. This would be a clean way to use technology to gather the intelligence that it wasn't getting before about Soviet capabilities. And um, so there was always that kind of um, idea that technology was more than just um, effective, but there was a moral component at the way that Land looked at it as well. Right. Well, you talk about a high-flying aircraft, you have to include at least a conversation about the United States Air Force. And and while he is not one of your main characters in this book, that means Curtis LeMay, uh, who is a oversized personality in his own right. Uh, and he had very specific specific ideas about what this aircraft should look like. That if anyone knows what the U-2 is, it's essentially the polar opposite yeah. of what the aircraft that eventually was designed. Yeah, um, so LeMay, uh, he was the, the head of the Strategic Air Command, um, and he did have have very clear ideas. He wanted the any sort of plane that um, was flown over the Soviet Union to be armed. He wanted it to be able to engage in combat. Um, and the U-2, of course, the one that was eventually settled upon, was very lightweight, didn't carry any weapons. It was, as you mentioned, the polar opposite of that. Um, one of the things that I, I really find interesting about this period is kind of the context that that was that the U-2 was developed in. There was almost today we might call it a war on science or or something like that but there was a real tension between the scientific community and the military community in 1954 um this was the height of mccarthyism in right. the late spring and early summer of 54 and at the very same time the tcp was starting to meet it was the same time that um, the Oppenheimer hearings were going on. Robert Oppenheimer, the head of the Manhattan Project, the father of, of the atomic bomb, he was basically um, being put on trial um, to have his security clearance revoked. And actually there were several members of the TCP who, who testified on his behalf. Um, LeMay and others were very much um, in the opposing camp. They, they wanted Oppenheimer's clearances stripped. So there was this kind of natural tension between the military and the scientists on the TCP, and it, it, it really did kind of transfer then, when the CIA was given control of the U-2 project, um, to a tension between the military and the CIA over control of the U-2 project. That was the, the kind of the context that this uh, project was developed in, and it, 
and it created this sort of battle for control over the project between the military and the CIA um, that the CIA, of course, ended up um, winning, so to speak, in, in taking control of the project. Well, in particular because the designs that were given to the Air Force, uh, the Lockheed design, which of course is what the U-2 eventually will be, was rejected outright by the Air Force. It, it, if history had gone a different direction, that might have just ended up in a circular file somewhere and no one would have seen it again. Yeah, it was really, um, you know, Land really kind of saved that from the dustbin. Um, Kelly Johnson, the the chief designer at Lockheed, had heard that um, the government was was soliciting ideas for a high altitude spy plane, and he essentially on his own uh, because Lockheed wasn't consulted. They weren't. Um, the the government was going with smaller aircraft companies, um, but Johnson on his own drew up the designs for the U-2, and he used as a model the F-104, which he had designed. Um, it had gone uh, into operation the year before, and he saw that he could use the the rough outline of the F-104 to create a glider-like plane that could, could fly at um, really unprecedented high altitudes. And um, so he developed this really on his own, made the sketches, they were circulated around Washington. Um, the Air Force, as you mentioned, rejected them outright. LeMay particularly wanted nothing to do with them. Um, but Land uh, saw the sketches. People on his team at the TCP saw them, liked them. They matched really what they were going for. That when Land saw those sketches, this was this was the sort of plane that he imagined when he was imagining a high-altitude reconnaissance plane. So he actually um, was able to call up um, Johnson and basically kind of made an end run around the military and was able to kind of start the conversation to pull Lockheed into the project. Well, and it's, it's hard to overstate how important Kelly Johnson was to U.S. aircraft development. I mean, you could just list the aircraft that he, he particularly designed, but the kind of innate understanding of aerodynamics was, was something that we haven't seen uh, much of since. Uh, the person could immediately see problems in their solutions. I mean, uh, I guess it was the head of Lockheed that says that Kelly Johnson could see air. Right. He, he just yeah. understood aerodynamics better than anyone else. Yeah, I, I mean, he really was a, a phenomenon. Um, he started young at Lockheed, and immediately when he got there, he distinguished himself as a special sort of designer. Um, he would find problems that other people didn't even recognize as problems in aircraft design. And his, as you mentioned, he, he came up with one plane after another that really you know, brought the U.S. and the U.S. military into the jet age. So he was a, he was a legend whenever this started. Um, and the U-2 would end up being one of his, you know, greatest creations. It was really a groundbreaking design just in terms of its lightness. Its, its lightness was really its, its virtue. If you think about a, like a 747 that you'd see on the runway of an airport now, that would weigh, you know, 750,000 pounds um, or more. The U-2 weighed 13,500 pounds, and that included more than 5,000 pounds of fuel that was stored in its wings. So this was an incredibly light um, and really pretty delicate aircraft. Well, it was so light that in one of the first 
was supposed to be just a test taxi, basically, and not even supposed to take off. It took off by accident because exactly, it was so yeah. light. Yeah, Tony Levere, the uh, test pilot for Lockheed, was uh, you know making the first runs in the U-2. It was just supposed to kind of you know test out the wheels, test out the brakes, and he just um, started going, and it just it wanted to fly. It just <laughs> lifted off into the air. Now, I, I think a lot of people underestimate the complexity of these systems, and I'm using the word systems on purpose, not just the aircraft itself, because the plane was light, but, and you talked about fuel, but it also had to carry a ton of film. Yeah. And that's where land and, you know, other organizations like Kodak were able to step in and, and make a difference uh, and do some really interesting innovations when it came to photographic technology. Yeah, every component, really, of the U-2 was groundbreaking, uh, from the lens design um, to the film that you mentioned. There were, you know, this, these cameras that would require, you know, literally miles of film. For, a, for, for example, a flight over the Soviet Union, it would just take so much, so many pictures that the, the amount of film that it required was enormous. And, of course, the film that was made in those days was incredibly heavy, and that would counteract the, um, the whole point of the U-2 really being a lightweight, high-flying plane. And it was such a problem in the beginning when they were trying to figure this out that they noticed when the film would go through the camera, just that physical act of going from one chamber to another, um, with so much film, it would actually affect the balance of the plane. Um, land found out that Kodak had been developing this special film um, made with mylar, which um, is a polyethylene that was new at the time. Um, and Kodak shelved the project. They didn't see any commercial application for this kind of uh, thin film. Um, but Land called them up. He talked to um, some of the technicians at Kodak and convinced them to to, to not mothball that, that project of, of mylar-based film. And that's what was eventually used in those cameras. So, yeah, there were so many other technological advances besides the plane that went into the U-2. So you can build the aircraft, you can build the cameras, but if you can't get funding for it and operational support, then you can't do much with it. And that's really where Richard Bissell comes in. Um, is it fair to say he was a numbers man? I mean, people talk about Robert McNamara as like the big numbers guy, but you kind of see right. Bissell the same way. Yeah, he was an economist, um, and he he was incredibly good with numbers. In fact, he grew up uh, with this sort of obsession with logistics. He would memorize train tables and um, routes and play games with himself. Like if he had to move um, cargo from Connecticut to the Rocky Mountains, which train lines would he take? And he kind of played those games with himself as a child. And um, it really, you know, kind of set the stage for how he developed. He was in charge of resupply logistics during World War II for um, Allied ships, and um, later he administered the Marshall Plan, which was, of course, the the effort, the economic effort to rebuild Europe after the war. So he was he was very well acquainted with. Um, how to move things and also how to finance things. And he knew where the money was in Washington. Um, and it, it was really interesting. I talked to several people who knew Bissell and who uh, were friends with him. And the first thing that they would always say was, uh, you know, he just had a massive intellect. That was kind of before I would even bring anything up, that's what they would say. So he had an ability 
to convince people that you know he was a guy who knew how to get things done. Well, and, and at that point, he was quote unquote a special assistant to CIA Director Alan Dulles, and and after Guatemala in '54, which Bissell was in charge of, basically U two was his reward for mm-hmm. being good at his job. Yeah, and and the success of the U two obviously gave him. Um, other rewards, and the one that everybody knows is the Bay of Pigs, um, which sort of, uh, you know, he is seen as the the father of the Bay of Pigs, and that ultimately um, really ended his career at the CIA. But the U-2, when he was put in charge of that, it was a huge, huge program. It started in late 54, early 55, really. And by the end of 56, the U-2 project alone was responsible for one-fifth of all cable traffic in the CIA. So it was a, a huge project internally. And when it, you know, it came off uh, under budget, um, on schedule, it was, you know, something that was really a feather in his cap and, and did give him a lot of leeway later in the CIA. So this is not just a book about these individual personalities, but really a friendship that grows between these three men who are who are from different backgrounds, some more silver spoon, some more kind of blue collar. Um, but a lot of them, they all had very kind of eerily similar personalities. Um, and I think you showed in the book that they were born within nine months of each other, like really right. almost the, the same person coming from different backgrounds. Yeah, they were all, you know, when they started in on this, they were all, I think, 45, something around that. Um, And they had all, um, during World War II, um, none of them were were soldiers. And I'm I'm leaving um, powers out of this. So Bissell, um, Land, and Johnson, uh, you know, they all really did make really important contributions in World War II from a civilian standpoint. Um, And they were all considered innovators in their fields. Um, And there was kind of a natural camaraderie and and sort of an understanding that they brought to the project that allowed them to work work well together. Well, one of the key components here is not necessarily the collection of intelligence, because that's, that's done effectively by the U2. But the problem, and it's a good problem to have, but it's still a problem, was that the overflights produced so much intelligence that the issue was how to actually process this information. Um, and, and that's where the CIA helped to form a new company that really was a game champ, a paradigm shift in how intelligence is analyzed. Yeah, there, there were, you know, there are so many kind of offshoots to the U2 program that are, that are kind of interesting. Um, one is a, a company called iTech. Um, and this was a company that was formed by Richard Lakehorn, um, and it was an offshoot of the U2 because uh, they needed new computational and analytical um, technologies to process the sort of, of, you know, just the trove, the halls of information that were coming back from the early U2 flights. And uh, iTech was, you know, considered it was one of these very early um, IT companies, and in fact, the name iTech it, it stands for Information Technology. So, it, you know, this was really kind of a foundational type of company. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. 
Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The problem, though, the U2 is really an asset with an expiration date. I mean, this, well, I mean yeah. clearly it's not because we're still using them today, but it was perceived as one, with an, especially if it's flying over the Soviet Union, uh, because at the time it started, the assumption was that Soviet air defense could not do anything about it, but at some point they'd be able to. Um, I'm wondering about how the perception from the people that you've talked to, perhaps, who are involved in this, what the perception was about how long people assumed the U-2 would be impervious to Soviet defenses. Really, from the beginning, they were, there was an assumption that it wouldn't be long at all. Um, and if in the memos, they refer to it, I think, I think it was land that referred to it in one memo as a melting technology, meaning that the window was shutting on this, that that its effectiveness with each day was melting a little bit. Um, they, they knew that Soviet radar technology was improving and that the missiles would be able to reach it. Um, and it wasn't long before the flights started, actually, that they were thinking of next-generation um, successors. The satellite program, for example, Land also spearheaded that, the Corona project, um, and that was the first space satellite uh, program that the U.S. had uh, developed, and that was in 1957. So the first U-2 flight was in, on, in July of 1956, the first flights over the Soviet Union. Um, so within a year, really, the U.S. was already launching a project to try to come up with a successor because they, they worried that this was something that you know, had a pretty short shelf life. Well, you mentioned in the book, even from the first flight, there were people who were very happy with the take, but someone like Dwight Eisenhower uh, was of a mixed reaction because the plane was dis- was su- was discovered. It was tracked. It was they knew it was there. Yeah, and you know, and so Eisenhower understood from the very beginning that this invisible plane wasn't really invisible. No, it wasn't invisible, but it was at that time untouchable. Um, yeah. So the Soviets, that first, those first flights um, in 1956, they, as you mentioned, they detected it right away. They knew those flights um, were were happening. They knew what they were about, and it was interesting in talking to Sergei Khrushchev. Um, he talks about his father just being so frustrated because there was nothing he could do. Um, he knew the flights were happening, um, but he couldn't. He didn't want to acknowledge publicly that he knew this because it, that would make it would underscore the Soviet weakness of responding to them. Um, so, yeah, it was something that the Soviets they knew it was happening, but they couldn't stop them, and the U.S. Um, they just kept pushing it because the the results were so good. They were getting so much intelligence from this, so much more than they had gotten before, that it was just irresistible to to um, 
order new flights. You mentioned that Khrushchev didn't want to make this public because it would make the Soviets look bad. What I thought was interesting is both countries had reasons to keep the overflight secret. So there's an agreement, uh, at least tacitly, not to make these public. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I found really interesting and was looking at some of the security breaches or potential security breaches that the U.S. was trying to stop and, and uh, during the development stages of this. Um, and just to give a couple examples, whenever the plane was being tested um, it, out of Area 51, the test pilots, Powers and others, they would fly U-2s over the United States and basically test them, taking pictures of U.S. landmarks. Um, and during one of these flights, uh, one of the pilots was flying somewhere close to the Mississippi River over the Mississippi, and he had a massive engine failure. And so Bissell is kind of monitoring this flight from Washington, and he gets the word that a U-2 pilot is, you know, basically over somewhere over America, and he can't operate his plane. So this, of course, was a a potential disaster in a couple of ways, uh, the safety of the pilot, of course, but also this is a top-secret project. They don't want anyone knowing about it. So they scrambled to try to come up with a way to get this plane down with no one seeing it. So essentially what happened was the pilot glided to uh, an Air Force base near Albuquerque, New Mexico, and was able to land without engine power. And Bissell had called the base and said, okay, be ready when this plane comes in. I want a huge tarp on the airstrip and people running towards this plane as soon as it stops and throw a tarp over over the U-2. It was just one of the kind of things he was forced to do to keep this project secret. Um, Another one that happened was Lockheed would run a shuttle. Um, every day from its campus in Burbank, California, to Area 51. And they would, you know, take people who were CIA employees or engineers back and forth from the test site to the Lockheed headquarters. And one day, one of those shuttle planes crashed. It crashed into Mount Charleston in Nevada, which was a snow-covered peak. The plane clipped the wing on the the peak of the the mountain and crashed. And um, several people, everyone on board of the plane was killed, tragically. One of the people on board the plane was a guy named William Marr, who was actually the chief of security for the whole U-2 project. And when the government responded to this crash, they knew that Marr had a briefcase that was full of, you know, highly secret classified material about the U-2 project, and they tried to find among the wreckage the briefcase to recover it, and they couldn't find it. And what they ended up doing was they laced the crash scene with um, explosives, and they they blew up the remnants of the plane. And, you know, you would think maybe that took care of it, but... Later, the next summer, a Boy Scout troop was hiking on Mount Charleston. It was a popular kind of place for trails, and they found the briefcase. Um, the Boy Scout leader looked inside, found all these documents, realized that these belonged to somebody whose rank was a lot higher than uh, Boy Scout leader, and he called the FBI, who in turn called a, a CIA office in California, and 
that threat was, uh, the threat of exposure was uh, taken care of. But it was these kinds of things, when you go back through the records, the CIA is constantly dealing with threats to try to keep this, this program secret. Well, it's something you can't imagine today, but multiple newspapers had to be convinced to sit on juicy stories about yeah. the U-2. I mean, that, that's, I guess in the age after Watergate, that's not something that you're going to see too often. Right. Yeah, there were the New York Times, the Washington Post, Cleveland Plain Dealer. They all got wind of the U-2 project and were prepared to write articles about it. And um, the government convinced them not to go with them in, in the interest of national security. One of my favorite um I guess souvenirs from my research is a copy of Model Airplane News from 1958. Um, They actually kind of broke some news about this this uh, the U2 program. They ran a fairly impressively detailed model um, sketches and specs for hobbyists of how to make a U2. And uh, you know, you look through this magazine in 1958. And you see, you know, things being reported in model airplane news that hadn't been reported anywhere else. Uh, they even included a little text box by the sketches saying, rumors say that, you know, these planes are being flown over the Iron Curtain. Um, so, you know, that was that was made public. But I think probably a lot of people in Washington weren't uh, monitoring model airplane news for, right. <laughs> for leaks. Well, Johnson, Kelly Johnson had predicted this to a degree because weren't there fake flight manuals and yeah. like uh, meteorolo- meteorological equipment that was put on the U-2 just in case they had to pretend that it was something else? Yeah, exactly. He had uh, – they'd even gone to uh, the lengths of making fake flight manuals and they even you know, made them with coffee stains and cigarette burns to make them look like they'd been passed around the hangars at Lockheed. Um, so they were definitely, you know, kind of taking precautions. So let, let's work our way up to the, the fateful flight, really, the, the, the flight right before the 1960 summit meeting between Dwight Eisenhower and Nikita Khrushchev. Uh, the May 1st, we just, we just had an anniversary of this, mm-hmm. of this flight. Uh, and this is really where Gary Powers comes in the story. I mean, you bring him up earlier, but this is kind of the foundation of of his story. And I think people certainly know the name. Maybe they've seen Bridge of Spies. Maybe they've heard about him in school. Um, But I think the misunderstanding is how good of a pilot he actually was. Yeah. Yeah, he was a top pilot in the Air Force. He was was a a fighter pilot um, based in uh, in Georgia when he was recruited into the CIA. And he was one of the first recruits. And the CIA, they were looking for people who were ace flyers. Powers was definitely an ace flyer. Um, he, he had impressed all of his commanders, and they were one of the first people. He was one of the first people that they recommended to go into the uh, the YouTube test program. And his story is just so compelling because he's kind of the ultimate every man in a way who finds him thrust himself thrust into these sort of exceptional circumstances but as you mentioned when you look at his his flying experience um he really was an extraordinary pilot it 
not necessarily just like how good he was on the stick. But I thought it always interesting about Gary Powers was kind of the right temperament to fly the U2. This was not like City of Your Pants going Mach 2. This was long 12-hour flights of just kind of always being in control in a situation where if something went bad, the likelihood is you were going to die. Yeah. Yeah, there was no – and a lot of people did, even in the test phases of the U-2. There were accidents um, that, of course, weren't publicized at the time, but where test pilots that Powers worked with um, crashed and died. Um, there was just no wiggle room at all. There was it, – it, there was a, a very clear line. You either succeeded or you failed, and there was there was no in-between. Um, and Powers was the sort of guy who was not easily flustered. Well, and that's um, one of the reasons, I mean, this May 1st flight was especially problematic because it, they didn't want it to mess up the summit, so they needed to make sure it went well. And that's why Powers himself was chosen for this, because he was their most experienced pilot. Yeah, he was one of the few at that time who had been around really since the beginning of the flights. And this was supposed to be the last one. You know, this was supposed to be the last flight, and it was the longest flight. It really went across, or was supposed to go across, the entire Soviet Union right through the middle. And end up, he was supposed to land it in Norway. Um, so this was, you know, of all of the U-2 flights, not, it was... The riskiest, just because it was going to be the longest, and it went over really um, sensitive installations in the Soviet Union. But it was also, of course, the riskiest just because, as we mentioned, with every single flight that they took, the Soviets were getting better and better at radar detection and, and trying to intercept those flights. We've had Gary Jr. has done this podcast before, and we, and we talked about this. But I, I always think it's interesting, so it's worth reiterating that the misperception that Powers was ordered to kill himself mm-hmm. because he had the, the suicide coin with the, the, the blowfish toxin needle with him uh, right. has been debunked so many times by this point that I'm not sure we need to again. But I, I'm wondering about all the survival gear because you, you, I, I've never seen it quite listed out the way that you did. Do you think this was psychological for the pilots or anything else? Because no one assumed they would survive. I do think it was psychological. Um, in fact, I think that a lot of the training that they were given was psychological, um, and it was an attempt to kind of put them at ease. Um, they went to, um, you know, through CIA training at the famous The Farm um, and did a lot of escape and evasion techniques. Um, but it was assumed um, in the CIA that the U-2, if it went down, it was such a delicate plane. Um, that there was just no way somebody could survive it. Um, and this was part of the sales pitch to Eisenhower, actually, um, that a, a U-2 pilot could never be taken prisoner because no one would be able to survive. Um, there was obviously also the altitude factor. Um, you know, people just really didn't know the effect that um, jumping out of an airplane at that, those sorts of altitudes would have on a person. Um, so it, it was, I think, uh, hi- highly psychological, you know, kind of a, a, something to put their, their minds at ease. So as people don't, out there know, Powers does survive, uh, although the U.S. government for a couple of days did not know that was the case. They assumed that he had died. 
And so Eisenhower and team had the cover story of a meteorological flight gone bad. But when they finally decide to tell the truth, I think this is un- misunderstood also in the public. And and you do a good job of, of focusing on how much of a milestone moment it was when Dwight Eisenhower finally cops up and admits the truth about this flight. Yeah, it was, you know, this was really the first time a president had directly admitted um, that the U.S. Um, actively spied on other countries. And it was, you know, there was a lot of pressure um, on him um, to, you know, he could he could either continue to deny, deny, deny. But this was, this really was, you know, uh, kind of a milestone moment the first time a president had um, openly admitted to, to spying. And he actually, by doing this, was also kind of admitting to misleading the U.S., public. And it's interesting to kind of go back and look at the press coverage now of how his revelations were received. Um, And some of it, you know, reading from today's perspective, um, (laughs) incredibly naive. Um, Well, I I was going to say that, you know, for anyone who is younger than the age of 70, uh, we were a little cynical about politicians lying to us. Right. Uh, and, and not making any political judgments. This is certainly not something that's just Republican or Democrat. But this is a time when I guess things were more innocent, perhaps. Naive could be a word you could use, which you did. But this was, you're right, the, the first time an American president came out and said, yeah, I lied to you. Right to your faces. Yeah, and, you know, the the press coverage was, you know, it was a mix of outrage, shock, um, and then some people actually, you know, were like, okay, well, we kind of assumed that all along. There were scattered reports like that. But, um, you know, there was the the level of surprise, I think, that this would happen um, is really striking today from, from our perspective to look back at it. Well, other than powers being launched into the limelight, Kelly Johnson really kind of takes front stage here with – the only other person that was part of this YouTube program that's revealed to the public. Yeah, he became the public face of it. Um, because so people knew that Lockheed was behind it um, whenever the, the news came out. So he, he became kind of the government's um, almost spokesperson. And whenever Power's plane went down, um, the Soviets released images of the plane, and there was a lot of confusion at, at the beginning um, whether this was actually the U-2. And Johnson um, was able to actually kind of clarify that after um, some fits and starts of, of looking at the the remains of the aircraft, uh, the pictures that were released from Moscow. Well, he tricked and, them. He tricked them into releasing more pictures, right? Yes, yeah. yeah. The So... The first pictures that came through, he said, well, no, this is not the U-2. He said that this is, you know, a different aircraft, and the Soviets ended up responding to that by releasing more pictures of the the wreckage, which the CIA wanted them to do because they wanted to gather as much information as they could about what might have brought the plane down um, and what the circumstances were during the crash. So the Soviets responded by releasing more pictures, and then he, he came back and said, oh, okay, yes, now this, this really is the YouTube. 
what people may not know is that Johnson actually had practice doing these kind of postmortems for uh, very prominent uh, air disasters because he had done it for Amelia Earhart. Yeah, he was um, he was basically a technical advisor to Amelia Earhart on her um, famous um, attempt to fly around the world. She um, had met with him at Lockheed, and they had gone up in flights trying to determine ways, for example, to make her plane as light as it could be to um, conserve fuel as much as possible. And so when her plane went down and she disappeared, he was, you know, turned to um, by the press as kind of a source um, in, in terms of trying to speculate what happened to her as well. So, you know, he, he had worked with so many test pilots. And one thing about researching this book that I really gained an appreciation for was just how dangerous the world of flying experimental aircraft is. It's just, you know, full of terrible, tragic stories. Um, and Johnson had worked in that world for a long time, and so he had been exposed to a lot of really tragic incidents like this before. Well, I think that's what made him the perfect person to talk to Powers after he was traded, uh, to kind of do the, the real long interview post-mortem of what happened. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. He had a way of being able to connect with pilots, and um, he had a really earthy character. He was able to, to kind of cut through formalities. Um, he was a, the kind of guy that people just liked to kind of hang out with and talk to. Well, and, and I think for, for Pow- from Power's perspective, Kelly Johnson was the perfect person for kind of spilling his story to because – Johnson understood the aerodynamics. He understood the difficulties of flying this machine. And as you mentioned, I mean, we can't get in his head, but there's no evidence out there that Johnson ever doubted Powers' version of the story. Yeah. So there has been all sorts of speculations concerning the downing of the U-2 and what really happened in terms of, you know, was it hit directly by a missile? Um, Was it, uh, you know, did Powers somehow descend to a lower altitude and then it was was hit there there's conspiracy theories and just enormous speculation that went around even back then and no one knew kind of the the flight peculiarities of the U2 better than than Johnson and he figured out pretty early um that what probably happened was a missile went up and didn't directly hit the U-2. It exploded close to it. The U-2 was a delicate flyer, and so an explosion close to it would send the plane. Um, it would knock it off balance, essentially, and when the U-2 got off balance, it was easy to, to lose control of it, and the plane, because it was so light, because it was so delicate, would break apart. Um, Johnson knew that. He knew that about the plane. And whenever Powers described to him what happened, it meshed exactly with what Johnson knew was the most likely scenario there. So, you know, others might have found that to be um, implausible, that a, a missile came up and didn't hit him and just exploded somewhere close by, and that, you know, brought the plane down um, others might say, well, that sounds fishy to me. Johnson knew that that was a possibility. So uh, let, me, let me ask you kind of a, a combined question to wrap this up. One is there, there's really not a great happy ending 
to any of these stories. Uh, as you mentioned, Bissell was essentially uh, kicked out of the CIA after Bay of Pigs. Um, you know, Killian, we talked a little about James Killian and then Edward Land lost some faith in Bissell after Bay of Pigs. They thought he'd become too much of a cowboy. Hmm. And then even later on, Kelly Johnson loses his trust in powers. Um, why do you think everyone kind of went in opposite directions? This is such a close-knit group uh, that all really was thinking the same way. Uh, was was it just Johnson and Land at the end that hadn't fallen out? Because it seems like everyone kind of went in their own direction after a certain point. They went their own direction, and then I think over time sort of came back. Um, I think um, as the years went on, um, you know, at the, at the time that this happened, so many things were happening so fast. You had this U2 incident that was just incredibly traumatic with lots of, of drama that, of course, involved all of these characters. You had the Bay of Pigs that was, you know, massive in terms of, of the impact on Bissell, um, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, there was just so much happening within such a short period that they were almost naturally pushed apart and they they were you know forced to take different jobs um but i think over time over the as the years went by they realized in looking back that the youtube project was special um for each of them in their careers and i think their views uh, for example land's view of bissell bissell's view of land um, and johnson uh, as well i think they softened and i think that they always looked um in their later years upon each other with a fondness and an appreciation for what they were able to achieve through that project. Um, it was interesting in talking to some of the family members, um, like Bissell's family, for example, um, and talking about how, you know, they just have the warmest memories of Land and Johnson and that their father, um, even though there were these periods of tension afterwards that um, he was able to kind of sort of maintain his appreciation for what they accomplished in that project. To write a book like this, you have to spend a ton of time with these people. I don't mean just the people you're interviewing. I mean your subjects, right? You you, you get to know these men, and they're all men in this case, uh, better than maybe you know some of your friends. Is there someone who stood out and you said, this is the kind of person that had, in your opinion, the most important impact in U.S. Cold War history? Well, you know, I think one of the people, I think the person that that stands out so much to me in this story is Edwin Land. Um, and part of that is perhaps because when I went into this, I might have known less about him than the other people. But the things that he did um, in terms of the U-2 project, the satellite project, which he spearheaded, um, huge projects um, that really did change the scale and the nature of the CIA and of intelligence gathering in America. Um, he played such a prominent role in that and was was unknown, you know, for decades uh, that he that he did this. When you step back and think he was doing all this and he was at the same time, a famous guy. It's right. pretty spectacular to, to just kind of step back and consider that. Well, I mean, that's the thing. Is like He's not somebody that lived his life in the shadows and no one ever heard of him. Everyone knew who he was. Right. Yet no one knew the other life that he was living and working so 
such an important role in American intelligence. Yeah, and he, um, I mean, it would have been very easy to kind of um, come out at the end of his career and take credit for this. He never did. And in fact, he, he went to great lengths to um, shield himself from from publicity for this he actually had his papers burnt when he was destroyed when he was when he died um so he never really got any recognition for this sort of work um but uh it it really is kind of the flip side of a career that was you know as an entrepreneur and an inventor that was incredibly accomplished there was this other kind of you know shadow side to him that was equally interesting and, and fascinating. Well, I mean, it would be like today, like you said, if, if there's a news story about Bill Gates for the last 20 years or 30 years working closely with the CIA and the NSA in a job like, you know, as a deputy director level, I mean, it would be, right. it would yeah. be mind-blowing, uh, you know, across the front page of the New York Times. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this is a fascinating book. Um, uh, as someone who's read a lot of this history, I can honestly say that there are wonderful new uh, angles being taken in this book, new, t- new evidence, new um, new ways of looking at a history that I had assumed was relatively stale. So I certainly congratulate you on bringing some new life into something that I thought was basically done. Okay. Uh, and you've proven that, it, that it's not the case. And the book is A Brotherhood of Spies, the U2 in the CIA Secret War, which is out now. The author is Monty Real. Monty, thank you so much for joining us today on SpyCast. Thank you for having me. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution to help support future educational programming. Please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hey, all. Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.